Welcome to Rebels with a Purpose, powered by the voices of Catapult X, who are mobilizing capital, technology, people, and heart to solve the world's biggest challenges. In this podcast, we pose five questions to leaders who are changing the world and its systems. I'm your host, Kate Byrne, CEO of Catapult X. Climate, technology, and mind shift change. Our rebel with a purpose, Jamie Arbib, co-founder of Rethinks, feels that when looking at the biggest challenges facing humanity, we need to transform our mindset and unlearn so that we can see the extraordinary possibilities emerging. Using a systems approach will drive this disruption and its impact as it ripples across the rest of society and just might save the climate. Jenny Arbib, the co-founder of Rethink X. Hello, hello. How are you, sir? Hi, Kate. I'm great. Thank you very much. Terrific. Well, listen, um, gosh, so many different ways you define rebel with purpose, and I'm just going to let it all unfold during our conversation. But what I'd love to do before we dive in is, will you share with people your path uh, and the journey to how you got to where you are today? Because I think it's it's so heartening to hear everybody's very more often circuitous paths as opposed to just straight linear down the road. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's a long and winding road in many respects. There's certainly no kind of master plan or, or even really any idea at the outset to where I might end up. And I, I still have no idea where I'm going to be in five years time, but I am where I am right now. So my, my journey to this point, um, I mean, let's go back, you know, university, I, I studied history mainly because I loved it. That was my favorite subject at school and I was fascinated by it and I've remained fascinated by it. And it, it, it's actually been super useful in the work I'm doing today. And after university, I, I, I sort of drifted into finance because I didn't really know what else to do. And they seemed to be paying the highest salaries. And uh, a bunch of my friends from university were going into finance. So, so I ended up heading into finance and not particularly enjoying it. Uh, I started as an investment analyst and I ended up finding myself in venture capital. And once I got there, I, I, I actually found the climate movement, essentially. I'd, I, I got involved in, in clean technology investment back before it was called clean tech. So we're going back to, you know, the very early 2000s. And I think we used to call it resource efficient technology back there. But Very sexy, sexy title. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was kind of the early days, pre the first boom. And I, I discovered climate change as part of that. It was one of the big driving forces for the adoption of clean technology. And I kind of thought I found my mission, you know, purpose as well as income kind of married together. And I loved it for a few years. But over time, I began to get really frustrated with the climate narrative. And I think what I was seeing back then was that technologies were improving extraordinarily. And yet, you know, it wasn't being picked up by people involved in the climate change space. So all we saw was kind of doom and gloom and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, there's nothing we, we can do but kind of give up consumption and cut back and, um, you know, tax and subsidy and everything else. And, and in my analysis, you know, when I looked at clean energy in particular, which was an area I was focused on, you know, what I saw was, was some extraordinary cost curves, you know, that solar and, and batteries and wind were, were coming rapidly down these cost curves. And you only had to look out, you know, a decade or so. And they become kind of competitive with conventional power sources and then continue to decline. And that the market was going to lead to this extraordinary disruption. 
And not only that, there were a ton of other benefits that came with clean energy, right? We have energy security, you know, the resilience of the system. I mean, obviously the economic benefits, which was, you know, still out into the future and health and all kinds of other benefits that came with it. And yet for some reason, you know, we are only banging on about the climate imperative, the environmental benefits that came with it. So I'm going back eight or so years now, I think to sort of 2014, 15, that kind of, that kind of period. And uh, I, I sort of embarked on this kind of crazy project, which, you know, through a foundation that I'd set up. And then, sorry, that's another part of the story, but I won't go off on that tangent right now. But, but through, <laughs> through this foundation, we, we embarked on a project, which is really asking the question, you know, how can we better communicate the benefits of clean energy to conservatives in America? Uh, and I went out and spent some time in the US and we, we started by hi hiring this guy, Frank Luntz, who you might have come across, who's a, who's a Republican pollster. He's actually the guy who, who coined the term climate change. I think working for the fossil fuel industry at the time, he wrote this infamous memo and was kind of deeply embedded in that side. But he's also, you know, he's a great wordsmith and understand, you know, which messages appeal to which audiences. And he ran a series of focus groups and he came back and he said, look, you know, climate change is toxic to conservatives. But if you, if you talk about clean energy through the lens of national security and the benefits to national security or about, you know, economics particularly, then you get huge support. And that was really interesting insight. And so, you know, we went away and we, we tried to develop some conservative messengers who could kind of take this, um, you know, understanding and this new narrative into the audiences that we were, we were looking to reach. I ended up speaking to, I mean, you know, a whole host of different groups from kind of the farmers union through to various Christian groups and also to the US military. We met a number of groups within the US military. And anyway, as part of those conversations, one particular kind of think tank called the Military Advisory Board was holding a scenario planning day, looking, really asking the question, you know, what would happen if we got off fossil fuels very quickly? What will that mean for national security? And as, as part of that day, they invited a bunch of experts along, and I got invited along. You know, the other people in the room were, were big oil company scenario teams, there were the State Department, big consultants and so on, the kind of usual big organizations you'd expect to kind of prognosticate on that kind of thing. And, and it was a fascinating day because, you know, eight of these 10 experts came out with kind of identical forecasts, you, you know, for the adoption of solar PV, the adoption of electric vehicles, you know, going out to 2040 or 2050, these, you know, these straight line forecasts, these low incremental progressions that saw even by 2050 or so, you know, maybe 10 or 20% solar and, and electric vehicles by that day. And this guy got up, you know, in the middle when it was his turn to speak, a guy called Tony Sebo, who, who taught technology disruption at Stanford and written a number of books on this subject, come and said, look, you know, that's not how technology disruptions happen. You know, they're not these kind of slow incremental progressions. They're rapid, non-linear, they're S-curves. And, you know, these things are over by the 2030s. And if you're going to take decisions on the back of these faulty forecasts, you're going to make some major mistakes. And, um, you know, when it was my turn to talk, I basically got up and said, look, you know, I agree with Tony. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was basically my presentation. Wow, yeah, that's right. And it, and it was extraordinary because, you know, they had the weight of kind of enormous institutions. And we were essentially kind of two outsiders with no organizations behind us and just, you know, our own work really to, to justify our opinion. But anyway, I mean, Tony and I went out for a coffee afterwards and, you know, we talked for 
you know, hours that day and then several hours over the weeks that followed about disruptions that were coming, you know, not just the transportation and energy, but, but, you know, food and agriculture and healthcare and education and finance and pretty much every sector of the economy. Well, we saw, you know, profound, rapid and consequential disruptions, you know, coming during the 2020s that would radically transform society. And yet no one was seeing that these were coming. No one was understanding how rapidly they would come. And we ended up, you know, deciding to found RethinkX, which is a not-for-profit research group that we set up six years ago now, which produces analyses of various sectors of the economy and various impacts, but through the lens of complex systems and, and technology disruption to understand, you know, really the non-linearity of disruptions. We've created a framework that captures that complexity, those non-linear forces that drive these, these very rapid disruptions and to understand the cascading impacts of disruption. So, you know, you can't kind of separate out, you know, the economy into individual sectors and try and understand them each in isolation. You have to look at the whole picture and you have to understand how interrelated the pieces are, but also how, how change to one small part kind of cascades across everything and can profoundly change um, all kinds of things. So we're beginning now to write a series of what we call implications reports, where we kind of synthesize all the sector reports we've done and, and, and look at what they mean for issues like climate change. So we published a report a month or so ago on climate change that comes to a very different outcome than most of the mainstream analysis. We'll publish future reports and the next one's on social issues, poverty, jobs, inequality those sorts of issues where we have a, a very different opinion on how we might go about solving. But really what we're doing is applying this complex systems framework to all kinds of things so that we can understand really what the processes that drive change are and what the root cause of most of our problems and how we might go about tackling them. Because if we look only through that kind of simple systems lens that we have, where we kind of reduce things into silos, only look at one part of the, of the, of the system, we end up, when we're trying to solve issues like climate change, it's hugely complex issues, essentially patching up the old system. We, we, we make the old system less bad rather than addressing the fundamental cause. And so that's really where I am right now. In the middle of writing these reports, we've just raised some money. We're just recruiting a CEO now at RethinkX, and we're about to expand and move from, you know, what's a very inward-looking kind of dry research group where we publish these 80-page reports to one that's much more outward-looking, where we engage far more, where we begin to produce other forms of output, video and documentary and so on and so forth, and begin to kind of catalyze you know, a network of rethinkers and redoers who can actually go and change society. So that's a kind of the, the, the long and winding road that brought me to where I am today. I love the notion of network of rethinkers and redoers. That's essentially so aligned, obviously, and that's why we're together right now with what we what we believe is going on in the world with Catapult X and what we want to really support. I'm going to highly recommend, and I'll put it in the, the notes, the show notes to a link to the report that you just referred to, the climate change. It's really interesting, and I think it helps bring home and demonstrate the relevance and also, to your point, the connectivity. And a lot of these solutions... They may take a little time, but they're not like crazy difficult. You just have to really stick with it. And I'm wondering if one of the reasons why others want to kind of keep it in the dark or they want to stick to the, oh my gosh, you know, Henny Penny, the sky is falling. Is it because, well, obviously there's businesses that are associated with keeping it that way, duh. But in the long run, it's going to 
be cataclysmic. And I, I keep thinking, it's not as if we haven't known that this was happening across all those systems, right? And if we realize that all of these systems are just that, they're dynamic. So they're going to shift. That's called evolution. And if we start intervening and just accepting that and making ourselves more agile, we can sort of bypass so much of the disaster that ends up ensuing. Don't you think? That's right. I mean, you, you know, for us, you know, most of the problems we face are really mindset issues, really how we see the world. I mean, so we, we wrote this book, Rethinking Humanity, last year, which, you know, looks really at the history of civilization, you know, 10,000 years back and maybe, you know, 20 or 30 years forward. And, you know, what we're doing there is really taking the kind of framework we use to understand change at a sector level, you know, to, to civilization, to societies. And, and we find very similar patterns. Which, of course, you'd expect because in, in all complex systems, you know, you have the same dynamics at work. They're sort of the forces that are hidden below the surface that drive change. And, you know, what we tend to do, you know, most of us tend to do when we want to kind of predict the future or, or, or we want to kind of forecast is that we start by looking backwards and we, we kind of draw a straight line to today and then, you know, extrapolate into the future. And so we're looking at kind of the data and the... Um, the trends and the events that are kind of on the surface, but they're really the kind of, you know, the manifestations or the output of these underlying processes that drive change, the kind of feedback loops and systems dynamics that are at work, they're actually, you know, somewhat predictable. Once you understand those, you can understand, well, really the cycle of history, because that's been the, the, the kind of the driving force of history of these, this pattern of kind of extraordinary nonlinear growth that we've seen as societies have broken through and grown by an order of magnitude over time. We've seen certain points in history. You know, if you look at a graph that we produce of city size, biggest city in the world ever, and you'll see that once we developed, you know, farming and agriculture, we settled down, we could support communities of, you know, a few thousand people. And then, you know, you get to a point in Sumer, in Uruk, specifically about 6,000 years ago, we, you know, we invent the plough and we, you know, we invent writing and... and, 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 and Technology. The, absolutely, yeah, and, and irrigation. And we have a series of inventions that allow us to kind of operate at a bigger scale. And we see the biggest city kind of expand up towards 100,000, you know, within a couple of centuries. And then that's the peak, you know, really for for another few thousand years and then Rome comes through and hits you know a million as a peak and then the modern industrial world up into the tens of millions but the point being is that each of those civilizations kind of broke through and then collapsed you know shortly afterwards because we're kind of hardwired for growth and it's been the same way since the dawn of civilization you know we have what we call a, a kind of extraction based production system where we're essentially harnessing raw materials scarce materials from as, as far afield as we can and they're the inputs into the system of production along with labor and so what we do is we exploit you know labor people and planet essentially and you know because we're in this kind of zero-sum competition this competitive world you know for scarce resources we essentially have to kind of exploit or we get exploited you know we have to grow or we get outgrown and that's the kind of underlying evolutionary driver of civilization so you know those societies that that have been too sustainable or, or, or too equitable, have slowed down progress, changed the incentives, and they've been outcompeted, and they, you know, they become essentially footnotes in history. And so, to us, you know, environmental degradation or the exploitation of people and planets, hardwired into the system, it's it's the essence of the system, in many ways. And so, you know, until we understand that, 
what we're essentially doing is just trying to patch up the old system, trying to make it, you know, a little bit less exploitative, both of people and planet. And that's not a solution. But, you know, in our analysis, the real solution, what we see coming, which is, you know, a suite of new technologies, we're actually transforming the model of production. So we're going from this model of exploitation, of extraction and exploitation, to one of creation and generation. We're turning the model on its head. And so we're starting with the individual molecules, the cells, the photons and electrons, which are available in abundance everywhere. And we're building up the products and the things that we need from the ground up. And it's a massively more efficient system, but it's also a totally different structure with totally different drivers. Um, and it unpicks those kind of intractable problems that exist within an extraction-based system. And that's why we struggle so much to solve issues like climate change, because, you know, in the old system, there are trade-offs between, you know, economic outcomes and environmental outcomes or social outcomes. And it's essentially a zero-sum game. Whereas in the new system, you're kind of cutting the Gordian knot. You're solving at the root cause. Sorry, I, I carried on a bit too long there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I, it's fascinating to me. And I just, you know, we'll have a sequel. <laughs> so what have been some of the biggest surprises in the industry in your mind? Yeah, so, so I mean, you know, our analysis, we look through the lens of technology and we, we, you know, we've written papers on the transport sector, on food and agriculture and on, on you know, the energy sector. But we also study, you know, information and materials and so on. We, we see those as the foundational sectors of the economy. You know, what's been extraordinary over the last five years has just been the pace of change, the pace of growth. So the cost curves for all of these technologies, all exponential and all traveling rapidly down these cost curves, you know, faster in some cases than, than even we predicted. And we're always the most out there forecast that you'll see. I mean, we see far faster disruption, far quicker improvement in the cost and capability of the underlying technology because we're modeling these kind of feedback loops and systems dynamics that drive that process. So, you know, we published our paper on food and agriculture, September 2019, and already the cost of precision fermentation, which is one of the key technologies through which we can produce proteins and other complex organic molecules. It's one of the processes that will disrupt livestock farming. And the cost of those processes or the outputs from those processes is already far below where we'd anticipated, right? So it's, you know, we're seeing progress at an extraordinary rate. And, you know, we see the same in batteries. We see the same in solar. I mean, we don't model any breakthrough technologies in batteries, for instance. We're seeing the cost curve continue to come down so that batteries and electric vehicles and for the grid are getting more and more competitive and addressable markets growing rapidly. But, you know, there will be some breakthrough technologies now we're fairly confident we're going to see over the next two or three years that will transform that again and offer a step change improvement. And yet still, you know, mainstream forecasters aren't picking this up, aren't appreciating you know, what this means and how quickly that's going to cause these sectors of the economy to be disrupted. You know, not because some guys in a room decide that the governments are going to regulate or put in taxes or put in some crucial piece of policy that's going to transform it, but because of the economics, because these new technologies are better and cheaper. And that's been the frustration is that we still, you know, as a, as a society, don't appreciate the heavy lifting that technology can do for us, right? Market forces are now a wind at our back. And that's extraordinary, right? 10 years ago, five years ago, they seem to be a headwind. And to get technologies adopted when, the, when it doesn't make economic sense is both extremely difficult and expensive. 
But now that those forces that are back, it's actually much easier for, for governments now to kind of remove the barriers and, and, and perverse incentives that exist and, and help kind of oil the slope. But it's a downhill slope now, not an uphill battle. So, you know, it's both exciting and frustrating. Yeah. So, Jamie, how do we get people in this ties in actually technology and mindset, right? Especially when we start demonstrating what it can do for us, right? And it can really help across so many different systems, which then brings economic ability up, uh, helps in democratization and access, et cetera, et cetera. Hopefully one day would, you know, narrow the gap, all of that. How do we get people to be okay with technology and not fear it so much? I know a lot of it has to do with job replacement, but I mean, how do we build that trust or how do we just get that comfort level? And, you know, especially nowadays, we've got, what, five different generations working under one roof. But I'm just, I'm really curious about it, especially like in the Dublin countries like, you know, the U.S. where I am. Any thoughts on that? I, I, th I think the issue is, are we doing things that are going to make it harder for technology to disrupt and transform these various industries where we need technology to come along and disrupt. And in many instances, the answer is yes, we are. We're doing some crazy stuff, you know, both in terms of kind of techno fixes, but also in terms of kind of policy or, or even kind of behavioral change interventions where we see some, some crazy stuff happening. But ultimately, it's a challenge of communications. We want to convert people's mindsets. And, you know, that's not an area where I have a whole lot of expertise. We're hiring a team and trying to kind of catalyze a kind of broader network that can help us communicate some of these messages. Because, you know, ultimately, it's a message of hope. Technology is neither good nor bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's caused a ton of problems, but it's solved a ton of problems. I mean, we live in this incredible world, right? We're talking from across the world today. You know, I know. You know, in our nice warm rooms, you know, I'm I'm certainly very well fed and and, and watered and so on and and um and so you know technology is responsible for an incredible amount of progress we've seen over the last couple of hundred years. So it's not all bad. It comes with some bad outcomes. But right. but actually, you know, we have the solutions that can remove those bad outcomes and continue to create more prosperity. And I think that's really important to understand that, you know, there is not an economic sacrifice here. You know, this is not an expensive thing to do. We can solve climate change and we can solve inequality and make money for the system as a whole and increase our levels of prosperity. We don't need to give things up. We, and, and I think that some of these narratives are, you know, not just wrong, but backwards and really unhelpful. It's something that scares me, actually, is that some of the, you know, well-intentioned band-aids that we that we use to try and solve problems actually going to cause much bigger problems down the road actually i'd be curious to hear what some of that is i know the languaging for sure focusing on sacrifice etc cetera, etc cetera. it all feels so sort of fear-based or do this or else or give up because it's already over or it's you know time's passing way too quickly so Let's, you know, talk about behavior change, for instance, the idea that, you know, we need to give up consumption to solve climate change or, or any kind of version of that narrative. You know, it's a degrowth narrative, essentially. And it, it's, you know, in my book, it's not just wrong, it's backwards. And, and it's deeply unhelpful because, you know, first of all, you know, you can't solve climate change. It can't work as a solution by giving up consumption. Right? You can't reduce consumption to zero. And you certainly can't reduce it to below zero. 
even if you reduced it, you know, 50% somehow, which would be an almost impossible task. All you're doing is delaying the effects of climate change by a few years. So, so it's not a solution. But secondly, you know, the, the human suffering that would come with that would just be unimaginable, right? It'd just be, it'd destroy jobs, it would destroy livelihoods. And beyond that, we'd lock in the kind of global inequities, right? We'd lock the developing world into, you know, a, a kind of second tier status and never have the opportunity to catch up. But most importantly, and this is a critical piece, is that the economic catastrophe that would come with reducing consumption by anything like enough to even make a dent would destroy all the capital that we need to build out the new food system, the new energy system, the new transport system. And so essentially what we'd be doing is cutting off the lifeboat, the only lifeboat we have, you know, just as we need it. And it's, it's utter madness. I mean, we have other, you know, problems with kind of techno fixes, you know, this massive government investment in things like nuclear and hydrogen that we just don't think are needed to try and solve climate change and so on and so forth. But, you know, they're wasteful and they're expensive, but they don't actually well, destroy our chances of essentially saving ourselves. You know, the answer ultimately is very simple. It's, you know, we write in our climate change report, eight technologies in three sectors will disrupt 90% of global emissions and open up the opportunity to sequester carbon at a vastly lower cost than people think today because you know the disruption of livestock farming would free up vast swathes of farmland that we could reforest for instance at very low cost but also produce a massive over super abundance of energy as we build out the new energy system that would allow us to sequester carbon in, in, in energy intensive ways that, that we can't possibly do today at far lower cost than people imagine. So we could get well below zero, but to get there, we need to disrupt those three sectors of the economy. And everyone just has to realize that that's what's gonna have to happen. Something's gotta give, right? You've gotta shift. So in your mind then, what is the reality today that you think in the next five years won't be, will cease to exist? I mean, I don't know if this is hope or insight, but honestly, I hope that people will embrace, you know, the hope behind this narrative. You know, people will see what's possible. And actually, we can understand that, you know, solving climate change and addressing, you know, inequity and inequality are possible. I'll give you a, for instance, it's not part of the narrative that's really out there, but as you transform your energy system, your transport system, your food system, you not only kind of remove you know, carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and, and, and make it cleaner, but you also make it more equitable, right? And, and this is the point I was trying to make earlier. So an energy system that's based on solar, wind, and batteries is fundamentally different to one that's built on, you know, extractive resources, you know, conventional power supplies, oil, gas, coal, and so on and so forth. A, it's difference in its structure, right? It's, it's all a, essentially a capital cost. It's all upfront investment, and then the system runs. There are no flows. Right, there are no flows through a system once it's built. The current system needs vast flows, and it comes with all kinds of geopolitical worries and resilience worries, and so on and so forth. But most importantly, you know, it's, it's a completely different structure. It's modular. It's scalable to any size of demand. Right, and so you know, in the developing world, where often there are you know political and economic constraints to rolling out conventional power systems. They don't exist to, to, to you know anything like the same extent with with solar wind and batteries. Right? You know you need massive scale financing, capital. You need essentially a coherent political system, centralized system to be able to roll out a centralized conventional power system. Those go away. You can have a bottom up model, for instance, to deliver 
um, energy to communities using solar wind and batteries. And it's modular, so it can be scaled to match demand. I mean, part of the reason why we don't see energy reaching the kind of the villages in developing world is because the demand needs are so low, right? We need them for, for maybe phones and maybe lighting right now, but we, you know, there aren't dishwashers and washing machines and all the other things that make it profitable in the, in the West to, to roll out a conventional houses. And that's why we had to subsidize our systems to be built out. You know, it was a challenge more of demand than of supply actually at the outset because we have you know very low demand essentially in the early days that's one point is that there's actually a, a you know a better system it avoids the kind of problems of centralization capital and a functioning political system but it's also scaled to match demand it's much more modular but most importantly actually is most of the developing world has a much better certainly solar resource than say northern europe or or, or actually much of north america and so it's going to be a real levelizer in many ways. And that's hugely exciting. I mean, Northern Europe, actually, you know, we've modeled various countries in Northern Europe and, and various, you know, developing world countries nearer the equator. And it can be a sort of 5x difference in energy cost between those regions. Because in Northern Europe, for instance, you've got the problem of winter. So when you build a fully renewable system, you have to build a massive overcapacity of generation to get through that winter. That's the lowest cost way of doing it. But that leads to a higher energy cost. It's still vastly cheaper than conventional powers today, but it's much more expensive than the energy, say, India or Brazil will have, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years hence. And that's going to act as a massive lever as well. So, so in many ways, you know, the advantage of geography shifting and that will help address, you know, global inequity and all kinds of other issues. will be fascinating to watch. What are the three most important topics and areas that you think uh, people should be thinking about today? And it can range from everything. It can be, you know, integrating art into creating innovation. It could be systems thinking. Yeah. Okay. I mean, number one, I think education, right? I think that's critical. I think, you know, what we have is an education system today that kind of co-evolve with, you know, our industrial age technologies, right? It's, it's linear. It's, it's mechanistic. You know, it hasn't really fundamentally changed for, you know, at least a hundred years, probably more. And, and, you know, the same way information is delivered, the same way we're taught to think. And, you know, the, I mean, the scientific method, which kind of, you know, underpins that in many ways, is critical, but it's only one piece, right? It's a sort of reductionist, deterministic way of thinking that, that kind of underpins, you know, what we call a linear mindset, this inability to see complexity. It's sort of simple systems thinking versus, you know, complex systems thinking. And I think, you know, ultimately that's the heart of many of our issues is our inability to comprehend complexity and it affects, you know, how we tackle problems, how we deal with all kinds of things. And it's going to be, you know, critical as we go forward that we learn to, you know, see the world through a lens that, well, essentially much more closely mirrors, you know, reality than that, that very reductive lens because the 2020s undoubtedly are going to be a massively disruptive and unstable decade as, as whole industries, you know, get turned on their heads. And, you know, there is a light at the tunnel. There is some hope. There's, you know, an extraordinary world that sits beyond that where, you know, the cost of energy, food, transport, the things we need, shelter, education, healthcare could plummet could be massively reduced from where they are, where we have a right to those things or some kind of universal basic income that covers those things. It's unaffordable in today's model, but, but out into the future, it becomes eminently affordable. And so there's a great deal of hope, but 
you know, the challenge is, is going through that decade because we tend to be very uncomfortable with change. You know, we tend to be very um, resistant to instability. We have through history, you know, a strong record of kind of looking for crazy solutions that make us feel safe, even though they condemn us for kind of long-term claps. And, and, you know, we do tend to trade, you know, safety and security for freedom, essentially. That seems to be a, a you know, direct correlation there. So, so I think by seeing what's possible, by understanding the kind of complex processes of change and, and seeing that world that's possible only 10 or 20 years out, you know, it, it can kind of help keep us on track and avoid some of these crazy solutions, you know, that are going to be thrown at us over that, that period of time. And I think, um, you know, it's critical because, yeah, if we don't make it, it's going to get ugly, that's <laughs> for sure. Yeah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train. That's right. <laughs> right? It's just kind of hold, hold on tight. So then, in closing, call to action. You know, the thing that's so fantastic about um, the Catapult crew and community is that, yes, they love to get into deep conversation and deep discussion, etc., but they also really, they're hungry right now to really roll their sleeves up and get in and, and do, be as well as do, but really focus on how can we, you know, start integrating and really making some of these changes come about. What would your call to action for folks be besides read your report? Yeah, it's well, amazing. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. First of all, read our reports and, you know, other work in that realm. But absolutely, it's open your eyes, first of all. <laughs> really, I mean, try and understand you know where we really are today and you can only understand where we are today if you can understand complexity you can understand what's going on in the technological sphere and the possibilities emerging because you know a lot of the instability and the uncertainty we see today not just in climate change but in our political systems and and, and so on we're misinterpreting you know it is they're, they're all the result of these longer term kind of trends that hit civilizations as they kind of reach their limits and we're in that almost that death spiral and our old system is going to collapse you know it's guaranteed there is no kind of road straight ahead where we patch it up and keep it running you know the challenge for us is will we enable this new creation-based generative system to break through and you know increase prosperity increase possibilities increase opportunity and transform the world and that's really the challenge so, so to me the big call to action is you know let's open our eyes and understand what's really going on today and then you know, let's do what we need to do to enable that new system to break through, remove the, um, you know, incumbency in all its forms, you know, not just in terms of tax and subsidy and political influence, but in terms of mindset more than anything. You know, it's, it's that incumbent mindset that that's actually our biggest challenge. Our inability, and that's, you know, it's only by learning to see anew that we'll ever hope to get there. I do believe that there is, to your point, um, there comes a point when you can choose what's real. And that is the beginning of making that shift to um, embracing the change that's about to come, right? Because suffering is, in some ways, optional, I guess. Yeah. I do yeah. think, Kate, if you're down in the noise and you're trapped in the kind of crazy events and the all the stuff that's kind of going on and the madness of the world, you can't see it. You just, you're, you know, you're, 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 you don't know which way is up. And I think it's only by standing back and seeing the bigger picture and really understanding those deeper processes that are driving change that it becomes really clear what's going on today. You know, we're, we're out of equilibrium, right? And that's actually great because it's only when you're out of equilibrium that change happens, really. But the challenge is there are two paths. There's one up and there's one down. <laughs> We, we need to get on the right track. <laughs> uh, I have to ask because I so agree with your education piece. 
Are you going to tackle that in a report? We might do. It's not on the high priority list. You know, one of the things we want to do is, is to create a sort I mean, I, I use the term academy very broadly. I mean, it's not. It's a, you know, a sort of virtual space where we can run programs and, and workshops for businesses and governments, but also people who want to, you know, learn to think in, in a different way. I don't think we'll do that ourselves. I think that we'll do that or we need to do that in collaboration with partners. But I think that's one intervention we'll make there. But actually, a report on the education system, I mean, it's, it's on our list, but it's it's stacked up and it's probably the, the fourth or fifth report from now that we're planning to write. Well, maybe we can work on some of those things together. That'd be awesome. Yeah, the more help we can get, the better. Yeah, I would, I would love that. Well, listen, uh, Jamie Arbib, thank you so, so much. I um, really enjoyed this conversation and there's so many adjuncts to come from this. I just really want to say thank you so much for being part of the Catapult community and for everything that you're doing. Don't stop rethinking. <laughs> well, thanks, Kat. And thanks for, for everything you guys do. I mean, Catapult's an amazing organization and uh, yeah, I'd love being involved with, with various things you've done. So yeah, let's stay in touch and, and keep working together. Definitely. All right. Listen, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Take care. This is Kate Byrne with Catapult X. Thanks for downloading our podcast, Rebels with a Purpose, available wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our next conversation with Shermeen Vojmir, author and founder of Token Kitchen. We'll be discussing Web 3.0 and how it can shift the dynamics of our socioeconomic systems. If you like what you hear in this series, join us in person at our upcoming Future Fest event. Yep, we're back in Oslo, Norway, May 18th through the 21st, 2022.